What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This week on the Truce Podcast, I talk with Caitlin Schess, author of The Liturgy of Politics. We discuss Christian political involvement and some of the false gospels incorporated in evangelicalism. Listen to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com. This is Troy and Jill, and you are listening to Revived Thoughts. You are greatly mistaken if you think that to be a Christian is merely to have certain views and convictions and spiritual delights. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Every episode we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Today's sermon was by Robert McChain, and it would have been preached in Scotland somewhere between 1835 and 1843. Jill, some of the ministers we take a look at live a long life filled with activities for God, you know, just the whole way through. But this is not the case for Robert Marie McChain. He dies at the young age of 29. And that's uh, something about the lives of these ministers that can be hard to fully understand. You know, I said some of these guys live a long life, but God lets some of these really great ministers die at a young age. He's not the first one that we've covered. Andrew Gray died at 24, and Christopher Love was only 33, and Oswald Chambers died pretty young as well. So his sermon is titled, Do What You Can. Uh, It seems especially relevant from someone who was as young as he was. Yeah, Troy, in 1813, in the town of Edinburgh, McChain is born, and it's one of those, we, we see it on the show a lot, but a classic example of kind of child genius, where we ha- you have kind of this prodigy that's just good at a lot of what they do, and it, it makes sense, you know, like these speakers, these pastors, they understand people, they understand how to communicate, they understand how the world works, it's kind of one of those natural gifts that, that God gives these these great communicators, and so it makes sense that they are academically a lot of the times, very efficient. Just to give you kind of an example of the level that McChain is at, when he was four years old, he was kept home because he was ill. He was recovering from this illness that took him a few weeks to get over. And during that time, he was bored, and so he decided to teach himself Greek. 
So he he learned the entire alphabet and uh, learned a, a, several of the main words at four years old just because he was bored at home. I have a five-year-old, and I, I mean, just trying to imagine her, I'm sick, I'm recovering, I can't go outside and play. Instead of running around the house, I'm going to, you know, sure. learn Spanish or Latin. Yeah. Yeah, at the time of recording this, the the nations in our uh, our lockdown from the COVID nineteen. I know I'm not learning a <laughs> learning Greek while well, while staying at home. Which of you listeners was like, you know what? I need to pick up on my Greek. I bet this- you there's. I bet you there's a couple of our listeners. I'm sure. I'm sure. But they also all of our listeners for the most part that are probably thinking that way are adults. I don't know that any sure. of them are four. I mean, my goodness. <laughs> he didn't consider himself a, a Christian growing up. He said he looked the part, and if he had met him, you would have thought he was a Christian, but he knew in his heart that he, he wasn't a Christian. In fact, he talks about, later, looking back on his life, he talks about kind of being envious and jealous of real Christians, because he could tell that they felt something in their hearts, and he knew he didn't feel that, and it bothered him. In 1827, he goes off to university, and by the way, uh, important to note, he's 14, um, so, you know, he clearly university and high school and things like that are a little different back in those days. Uh, but he goes off to university and becomes quite the party student, as I guess a 14-year-old would. And, and I told my, I was talking to my wife about this, and she's like, well, 14 back then is a lot more mature. You know, you read stories from that day, you're practically an adult at that point. So I, I guess that's true. He was very popular with poetry and music and would spend his time at clubs and playing cards. And he was just a socialite kind of guy. And he was really living up that, you know, aristocratic life of people back in those days. If you see those old TV shows and you hear them, you know, fanning themselves and talking the gossip, he would have been right there, right at home, doing pretty well. But at the time, he had an older brother who he prayed for him all the time. And he was constantly telling Robert, you know, you need to come back to God. You need to get back in the church and stuff. And then in 1831, that brother died. And this shocked Robert. He was suddenly was overwhelmed with grief, and he, he was asking those big questions. And in his diary entries at the time, he stopped finding joy. He said, "Just I don't want to play another game of cards. I don't care about that anymore. And he was asking and wrestling with these big questions. And he said later on that the Holy Spirit woke him up to the world to come, and this changed him. And one diary entry specifically said he, he found Jonathan Edwards' writings, and suddenly he just was filled with all this passion. And you can see how he was suddenly being influenced towards God. He would enter a school for theology a little bit after that, and uh, and by 1835, he was going to church to start as, you know, be a part of a parish. So in 1839, Scotland sends McChain and Andrew Benar, along with two other ministers, to Palestine in Jerusalem to check out the situation there. Andrew Benar and McChain became pretty, pretty good friends during this time, and it was Benar that ended up writing his biography and helped preserve a lot of his work. Now, McChain was never a really healthy person. He kind of struggled with his health uh, throughout most of his life. And so part of the reason they sent him to go was because he did have a, a, a fiery passion. He had a missionary zeal for the Jewish people, but also because his health was bad and they thought the warmer quiet of the Palestine area would help improve his health. While they were there, Benar and McChain kind of became famous. They wrote letters back home to the press. They got printed and celebrated, and they they wrote a book when they came back, and it became a bestseller. And you know, it's it's, it's kind of like becoming going viral in a sense. Like, oh my gosh, these guys went to the to the promised land, and they're telling us what's going on, and here's all their information. And he said one thing that really impressed him, that just stuck with him though, was that the promised land was barren. You see, read about Antioch and Capernaum and all these different places, and there's these big, bustling cities. And then when he got there, 
they were not there anymore. They've been lost to time. They're just, you know, they're shells of what they would have been during Jesus's time. And it really just impressed on them. Like this life is temporary. God is eternal. And, uh, and while he was there, he gets sick again. And he, he, they, he, they thought he was going to die in Smyrna and he, he prayed desperately. He was just praying to God, if I'm going to die, please do something special in my church. I, I love my congregation. I love my people. Take care of them. And at the same time, there's this thing where this guy was actually, you know, called on to preach for him. His name was W.C. Burns. And while he was preaching, while McShane was gone, this huge revival just broke out there where people were coming to the Lord. They were weeping. They were crying. And and honestly, Joel, we could do a deep dives on just revivals and the reactions. Mm-hmm. They're very emotional. And um, I think that this quote was kind of the, the one of the better ways to say, I don't know that I could explain it better myself, but... And the, the quote I'm reading from here just says, the people felt they were praising a present God. And such a sight as this was not uncommon throughout the remainder of uh, McChain's ministry as well. The grief at sin, which filled the hearts of many, could only be expressed by their tears. And the distress distress expressed by one awakened sinner to McShane represented the feeling of so many others. I think he said, hell would be relief from the fear I have right now of this angry God. And that when he preached... It was an awful and breathless stillness listening to McShane. These are words and descriptions of services that you would not hear describing a church today. And that's not like a the church in America isn't like this today. It's just it's very different from the way we're doing church now. And I was really just kind of interested in that big difference. But anyway, he's preaching, for, he's praying out in Smyrna for revival. He survives that incidence of illness. And when he gets back, his church has had this huge revival moment, and it sticks with him the rest of his life. In his final years, uh, I mean, he was he, he was very ill as a person in general. Uh, there was eventually a typhus fever that kind of broke out in his hometown that would prove to be uh, too much for him to battle. In his final years, uh, with his congregation, like he, you can see his, he becomes more and more passionate, more and more direct with his congregation and fellow ministers about how temporary their time on earth is and how important it is to give yourself to to God to convert your life over to uh, a life of the Lord. He's he's quoted saying, "I do not expect to live long. Changes are coming. Every eye before me shall soon be dimmed with death." Another pastor shall feed this flock, another singer lead the psalm, another flock shall fill this fold. There is no believing, no repenting, no conversion in the grave. No minister will speak to you there. This is the time of conversion. There's another moment where he is speaking to uh, a gathering of other ministers, of other pastors, and he says, Our people will not thank us in eternity for speaking smooth things. They may praise us now, but they will curse our flattery in eternity. So it's, it's, he's, he's pretty bold, and he's pretty firm with his, his conviction that we need to not be wasting these people's time. We need to get down to brass tacks. Uh, and convey the truth to them. And that's one thing, you know, to to kind of hear from a 65-year-old man or, you know, someone that's been preaching their whole life and it's getting down to the end. But this is coming from a guy in his 20s. Imagine a guy in his 20s here being that real and kind of focusing that much on death because that was his reality. He knew he was going to die young. Like, that was just something he made his peace with. And he knew he needed to make the best of his time when he was there. Again, Typhus would kind of come into his town and... With his poor health already, he wasn't able to fight that disease, and he would die when he was 29 years old.
This week on the Truce Podcast, I talk with Caitlin Shass, author of The Liturgy of Politics. We discuss how evangelicalism has gotten tangled up in nationalism. We end up in positions where we take passages intended for Israel and apply them to America in ways that are not not good uh, exegesis. But also, I think then we end up in a position where we have to defend, we have to baptize the whole, especially early history of our country, because if it was founded on Christian values and God has to be defended and Christian values have to be defended, then we end up in a position where we either have to deny some of the atrocities very early in our country's history, or we have to say that those are Christian values. We have an ability in a unique system in which we have some democratic involvement in the in the running of our country to hold it to account to what God says countries should be. Listen to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com. At his funeral, 7,000 people attended. And we use big numbers like that, but we always try to remind you, this is the 1800s. There was no plane. There's no highway. These people would have walked there or taken a horse there. And they would have all come to see this guy. One of the things that outlived him in his sermons was his Bible reading plan. He wrote out a plan to read the entire Bible in a year. You would read the Old Testament once and the New Testament and the Psalms twice. And to this day, this is actually a really popular Bible reading plan. I, I got, you know, D.A. Carson has recommended using this plan. The ESV recommends using this plan. The New English Translation recommends using this plan. So this is something that has really stuck with us. This guy really gave his all in life, and it was a life that was shorter than most. Uh, He was constantly sick and tired, and yet he's preaching the truth to his congregation and praying with just a deep love for others to come to know Christ. But Robert McShane, uh, he did all he could for God and for the ministry. I think that the sermon, Do What You Can, uh, will challenge us to do the same. In Mark chapter 14, verse 8, we read, She has done what she could. She came to anoint my body for my burial. From the Gospel of John, chapter 11, verse 2, we learn that this woman was Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. We have already learned that she was an eminent believer. She sat at the feet of Christ and heard his word. Jesus himself said to her, Mary has chosen the good part which will not be taken away from her. Now, it is interesting to see this same Mary eminent in another way, not only as a thoughtful believer, but also as an active believer. Many seem to think that to be a believer is to have certain feelings and experiences, forgetting all the time that these are but the flowers and that the fruit must follow. The engrafting of the branch is good, The inflowing of the sap, good, but the fruit is the end in view. So faith is good, and peace and joy are good, but holy fruit is the end for which we are saved. I trust many of you last Sabbath were like Mary, sitting at the Redeemer's feet and hearing His Word. Now I would persuade you to be like Mary in doing what you can for Christ. If you have been bought with a price, Then glorify God with your body and spirit, which are His. I beseech you by the mercies of God. First, these are things which we can do. One thing is we can love Christ, pray, and praise more. What this woman did, she did to Christ. 
Jesus had saved her soul, had saved her brother and sister, and she felt she could not do too much for him. She brought an alabaster jar of ointment, which was very costly, and broke the jar and poured it on his head. No doubt she loved his disciples, Holy John and Simon Peter, yet she loved Christ more. No doubt she loved the poor and was often kind to them, yet she loved Jesus more. On his blessed head that was so soon to be crowned with thorns, on his blessed feet that were so soon to be pierced with nails, she poured the precious ointment. This is what we should do. If we have been saved by Christ, we should pour out the best affections on Him. It is well to love His disciples, well to love His ministers, well to love the poor, but it is best to love Him. We cannot now reach His blessed head nor anoint His holy feet, but we can bow down at His footstool and pour out our affections towards Him. It was not the ointment Jesus cared for, What does the king of glory care for a little ointment? No, it is the loving heart poured out upon his feet. It is the adoration, praise, love, and prayers of a believer's broken heart that Christ cares for. The new heart is the alabaster jar that Jesus loves. Oh, brethren, couldn't you do more in this way? Could you first give more time to pouring out your heart to Jesus breaking the box and filling the room with the odor of your praise? Could you not pray more than you do to be filled with the Spirit, that the Spirit may be poured down on ministers and God's people and on an unconverted world? Jesus loves tears and groans from a broken heart. Another thing that we can do is to live holier lives. The church is described in the Song of Solomon, Who is this that comes out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the powers of the merchant? The holiness of the believer is like the most precious perfume. When a holy believer goes through the world, filled with the Spirit, made more than a conqueror, the fragrance fills the room. As if an angel shook his wings, if the world were full of believers... It would be like a bed of spices. But oh, how few believers carry much of the odor of heaven along with them. How many of you might be the means of salvation if you lived a holy, consistent life? If you were evidently a sacrifice bound upon God's altar? Wives might, without a word, win their husbands when they see your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Parents might, in this way, save their children when they saw you holy and happy. Children have often saved their parents. Servants, adorn the doctrine of God, your Savior, in all things. Let your light shine before men. The poorest can do this as well as the richest, the youngest as well as the oldest. Oh, there is no argument like a holy life. And another thing we can do is seek the salvation of others. If you have really been brought to Christ and saved, then you know there is a hell. You know that all the unconverted around you are heading to it. You know there is a Savior and that He is stretching out His hands all day long to sinners. 
Could you do nothing more to save sinners than you do? Do you do all that you can? You say that you pray for them. But is it not hypocrisy to pray and to do nothing? Will God hear these prayers? Have you no fear that prayers without labors are only provoking God? You say you cannot speak, you are not learned. Will that excuse stand in the judgment? Does it require much learning to tell fellow sinners that they are perishing? If their house was on fire, would it require much learning to awaken the sleeper? Begin at home. Couldn't you do more for the salvation of those at home? If there are children or servants, have you done all you can for them? Have you done all you can to bring the truth before them, to bring them under a living ministry, to get them to pray and to give up sin? Do you do what you can for your neighbors? Can you pass your neighbors for years together and see them on the broad way without warning them? Do you make full use of tracts, giving suitable ones to them that need them? Do you persuade Sabbath breakers to go to the house of God? Do you do anything in the Sunday schools? Could you not tell little children the way to be saved? Do you do what you can for the world? The field is the world. And another, do you feed Christ's poor? I am far from thinking that the wicked poor should be passed over, but Christ's poor are our brothers and sisters. Do you do what you can for them? In the great day, Christ will say to those on his right hand, Come, you who are blessed, for I was hungry and you gave me meat. They stand in the place of Christ. Christ does not any more stand in need of Mary's ointment or Martha's hospitality or the Samaritan's drink of water. He is beyond the reach of these things and will never need them. But he has left many of his brothers and sisters behind in this world. Some are diseased, some lame, some like Lazarus, all covered with sores. And he says, what it is you do to them, you do to me. Do you live plainly in order to have more to give away? Do you put away vain and gaudy clothes that you may be able to clothe the naked? Are you thrifty in managing what you have, letting nothing be lost? Second point, reasons why we should do what we can. For starters, Christ has done what He could for us. In Isaiah, what could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? He thought nothing too much to do and too great to suffer for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Greater love than this has no man. All his life between the manger at Bethlehem and the cross at Calvary was spent in labors and infinite sufferings for us. All that we needed to suffer, he suffered. All that we needed to obey, he obeyed. All his life in glory, he spends for us. He ever lives to make intercessions for us. He is head over all things for us. Makes everything in our world work together for our good. It is all but incredible that each person of the Godhead has made himself over to us 
to be ours. The Father says, I am your God. The Son, fear not, for I have redeemed you. The Holy Ghost makes us a temple. I dwell in them and walk in them. Is it much that we should do all that we can for Him? That we should give ourselves up to Him who gave Himself for us. And also Satan does all he can. Sometimes he comes as a lion. Your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. Sometimes as a serpent, as the serpent deceived Eve. And sometimes as an angel of light, he does all he can to tempt and deceive the saints, leading them away by false teachers, injecting blasphemies and polluted thoughts into their minds, casting fiery darts at their souls, stirring up the world to hate and persecute them, stirring up father and mother against the children and brother against brother. He does all he can to lead captive wicked men, blinding their minds, not allowing them to listen to the gospel and steeping them in swinish lusts that lead them into despair. When he knows his time is short, he rages all the more. Oh, shouldn't we do all we can if Satan does all he can? And also we have done all we could the other way. This was one of Paul's great motives for doing all he could. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, for putting me into the ministry, for I was a blasphemer and persecutor and harmful. He never could forget how he had persecuted the church of God and wasted it. And this made him as diligent in building it up as hailing men and women to Christ. He preached the faith which he once destroyed. So with Peter, let us live the rest of our time in the flesh, not to the lust of men, but to the will of God. For the time in the past will suffice to have done the will of the Gentiles. When we walk in extravagance, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banqueting, and abominable idolatries. So with John Newton, how can the old blasphemer be silent? So with many of you, you ran greedily after sin. You were at great pains and cost and did not spare health or money or time to obtain some sinful gratification. How can you now grudge anything for Christ? Only serve Christ as zealously as you once served the devil. And Christ will own and reward what we do. The labor that Christ blesses is believing labor. It is not words of human wisdom, but words of faith that God makes arrows. The word of a little maid was blessed in the house of Naaman, the Syrian. Follow me, was made the arrow to pierce the heart of Matthew. It is all one to God to save, whether with many or with those that have no might. If you would do all you can, the town would be filled with the fragrance. Christ will reward it. He defended Mary's work of love and said it should be spoken of all over the world. And it will be told still to come in the judgment. A cup of cold water he will not pass over. 
Well done, good and faithful servant. Last, if you do not do all you can, how can you prove yourself a Christian? Pure religion and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and keep himself unspotted from the world. You are greatly mistaken if you think that to be a Christian is merely to have certain views and convictions and spiritual delights. This is all well. But if it leads not to a devoted life, I fear it is all a delusion. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Now let us answer objections. First, the world will mock us. And the answer is, this is true. They mocked Mary. They called it waste and extravagance. And yet, Christ said it was well done. So if you do what you can, the world will laugh at you. But you will have the smile of Christ. They mocked Christ when he was full of zeal. They said he was insane and had a devil. They mocked Paul and said he was bad, and so with all of Christ's living members. Rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of the sufferings of Christ. If you suffer with him, you will also reign with him. Now, what can I do? I am a woman. Mary was a woman, yet she did what she could. Mary Magdalene was a woman, and yet she was first at the tomb. Phoebe was a woman, yet an aid of many, and of Paul also. Dorcas was a woman, yet she made coats and garments for the poor at Joppa. What about I am a child, yet out of the mouth of babes and children God perfects praise. God has often used children in the conversion of their parents. There is no excuse. I have too little grace to be good. He that waters others will be watered himself. The charitable soul will be made fat. It pleased the Father that in Christ should all the fullness dwell. There is a full supply of the Spirit to teach you to pray, a full supply of grace to slay your sins and quicken your graces. If you use opportunities of speaking to others, God will give you plenty. If you give much to God's poor, you will never want a rich supply. God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. Bring all the tithes into my storehouse and prove I am now here with you. Honor the Lord with your substance and give the first fruits of all your increase. So will your barns be filled with plenty, and your presses will burst out with new wine. There were two parts that really stood out to me. First is Satan does all he can. Boy, is there anything more convicting and maybe discouraging to think about that like yeah if you don't do all you can you see the prince of darkness puts in full time 
at doing his best, right? And you can't put in full-time working for God. And Satan already knows the end for him, but he's still going to fight. Give it all he's got. You should do the same, right? That's it's, it's, a, it's a pretty solid backhanded slap there. And the other part that really stood out to me is, how can you say that you are a Christian if you do not do all you can? I feel like it's so easy to at the end of a long day or something, just be like, you know, I've had a long day. I've had a stress. This week's been crazy. You know, you don't know what I'm going through right now. I just need some time. And he's saying, no, if you're not putting in all you can, if you're not giving it all for God, even in those moments when it's hard, how do you call yourself a Christian? If you're only a Christian when things are good or when you've got time to spare, money to spare, energy to spare, but you're showing that your faith isn't real when it needs to be real. And I, I really think, again, you know, you could say that, well, it's easy for him to say, but this guy was a guy who was sick his entire life and died at 29. It wasn't easy for him to say, but he still says it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revived Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Wayne Geiger. Wayne Geiger is the pastor at First Baptist Grain Valley in Missouri, and he's an adjunct professor of communications. You can visit his blog and website at waynegeiger.com. We'd also like to invite you to share this episode with someone. If you can think about a specific person, if someone comes to your mind and you go, maybe I think this specific person would like this episode, Put in a text message, send it over to them, and share revived thoughts with them. We'd really appreciate it. Hopefully they'd really appreciate it. And if you can't think of one person, maybe you've already told that one person, try putting it on social media, but maybe as you put it up, tell them, you know, just, it's easy to click a share button, but maybe throw on there too, say, hey, this is what I learned or what I really liked about this episode or what I really enjoy about revived thoughts and think is good about the show. When people see what you're getting from it, they're going to want to know uh, maybe if they can get that same thing from them. So we hope you do that. And we hope that this show does mean something to you. And that will be something you would be encouraged to do. This is Troy and Joel, and this is revived thoughts. This week on the Truce Podcast, I talk with Caitlin Schass, author of The Liturgy of Politics. We discuss Christian political involvement and some of the false gospels incorporated in evangelicalism. Listen to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.